0: dark. I can't move. My eyes are open and my body feels like stone. My arms must weigh a thousand pounds. The room is loud. I am terrified. I can't move. I can move my eyes and I see it at the end of my bed. It is crouched there, smiling at me. The creature is black with a broken face. Its tongue creeps out of its mouth, too long in comparison to its body. I want to scream. Nothing comes out. I can't open my mouth. I feel a tear leak from my eye onto my cheek. The thing begins to slowly crawl up onto my bed using my legs. Its hands are elongated and inhuman. Its claws are digging into my legs. It crawls up my body and I can feel its weight on my chest. I can't move. It's moving disjointedly and the claws are digging into my body. I can't scream. It leans down toward my face, and I shut my eyes. I can feel its breath upon me. Its elongated tongue licks my ear. I cannot move. I lay there, and I feel its thick tongue probing my ear. This goes on forever. My entire body is tingling. It sounds like a hive of bees is in my room. I struggle, but my body will not move. After what feels like hours, I am able to whisper and jerk my legs. The weight gradually begins to lift off my body, and the tongue goes with it. The being rises up to the ceiling and disappears. I am finally able to move, and I fill my lungs up to scream. Hey guys, I know this episode is late. Uh, we had some turmoil go on, so I do apologize. Um, it was finals week. Things got a little out of whack, but we're back, so I appreciate everyone. Thank you so much for listening. I appreciate all your support, um, all of your suggestions. Everything is awesome, so I just wanted to say thank you so much for that. I am trying a few new audio settings, um, so just give me some feedback. We'll see how that goes. Um So uh, again, thank you. Uh, Tonight, if you'd like to join along, I'll be drinking what I've dubbed the Three Fates, which consists of tequila, orange juice, and grenadine. And this is basically a tequila sunrise. And I came up with this because if you've ever experienced the subject matter that we're going to discuss, uh, likely you would really wish for the sunrise to come because you would like to wake up as soon as possible. If you've already guessed... Uh, Kudos to you, and if not, what we're going to be discussing today is sleep paralysis. Um, This episode may not be suitable for younger listeners, uh, just because the subject matter is going to be, you know, a little bit creepy, and it could be nightmare-inducing, so please use your discretion. Um, We're going to be discussing things like nightmares and demons and other terrifying things, so um, just use your discretion, and I'm going to start diving in. Um, so just to go into the background, the word nightmare is actually derived from an old English word that's mare. I mean, it, it means like a mythological demon or goblin that torments or frightens people with dreams. Mare has also been linked to the word incubus, which is a male demon. There is an old Dutch word, and I'm probably going to mispronounce this horrifically, so I do apologize. Um, the word is nachtmeri, and a German word, uh, nachtmar, And so this isn't a new term. I guess that's the whole point of this is that it's been around for years and years. Um, Some of you might have heard of night terrors, which is not the same as a nightmare. And I'll get into that a little bit later. Um, and so first, in order to kind of understand what's going on when we sleep, I wanted to talk about the different stages of sleep. So we'll go through the stages, and then we'll kind of go through what the brain does while we're sleeping, and then we'll kind of get into the mythology. So just hang with me while we do this. Um, so first, non-REM sleep starts with stage one, and REM means rapid eye movement. And so you'll probably hear me kind of pair, like, we'll we'll shorten that up just because it's a lot to say. So non-REM sleep starts with stage one. This is the lightest stage of sleep. So if you were taking, if you were looking at your brain while you were sleeping with what we call an EEG, the brain frequency is slightly slower during this stage than it would be during your awake time. There's muscle tone present in your muscles, so your skeletal muscles, and your breathing would be regular. Stage 1 consists of periods of dreaminess and it's kind of like when you're daydreaming except we're beginning to fall asleep. And people that practice meditation or deep prayerfulness are sometimes hanging out in this pre-sleep alpha stage. Um and this is the stage where you're more likely to experience that falling sensation or a hypnic jerk where that's just a sudden really involuntary twitch of your body and so your body jumps and then you awaken really abruptly. And then this is when you would also be really likely to experience a hypnagogic hallucination. And that would be something like thinking you heard a doorbell or you thought you heard someone calling your name, things like that. And so stage two typically follows stage one, and this is going to be a little bit deeper sleep. During this stage, the sleeper is a lot less likely to be awakened. And if you are monitoring the stage, you would see sawtooth waves and then sleep spindles. So you'd see like a sawtooth pattern and then a spindle. Stage three and four become progressively deeper, and these stages are called slow wave sleep or SWS. It's also referred to as delta sleep. During this stage, if we were on that, if we were looking at the EEG, this would show a much slower frequency with high amplitude signals that are called delta waves. That's why sometimes people call it delta sleep. And the sleeper at this point is going to be really difficult to awaken. So some studies have shown that loud noises, sometimes over 100 decibels, would not wake up the sleeper in this stage. And one interesting thing is that as we age, we spend less time in deep sleep and more time in stage two. And this could explain why some children sleep so hard and are just almost impossible to wake up. And then as adults, we wake up a lot easier when it comes to those noises. And so I know a lot of times people will say, oh, once you became a parent, you can't sleep. I think it's probably a mixture of listening for your children. And then just because as we age, we just end up not hanging out as much in the deeper stages. Um, slow wave sleep, SWS, is usually referred to as deep sleep and it's the deepest stage of non-REM, so NREM sleep. Um, in stage three, we start seeing the greatest arousal thresholds, such as being difficult to wake up. And then after you're woken up, if you're in stage three, you're going to feel very groggy. And if someone administered a cognitive test, which is going to test kind of how you're responding to the stimulus after you were woken up from stage three, for about half an hour or so, you're going to have a very slow response compared to someone that was woken up from a different stage. So your mental performance is going to be impaired. And this is called sleep inertia. And then at the end of stage four, this is when the sleep waking and like, or I'm sorry, sleep walking and bedwetting is usually going to occur. So this is going to be when you're in that really deep sleep. Um, It does happen to children sometimes just because they are so out that they don't wake up. And they could, you know, they could sleepwalk or they could accidentally wet the bed just because they don't wake up from the body saying, hey, it's time to get up and go. Um, And then when sleep deprivation occurs, there's usually a sharp rebound of slow wave sleep, which suggests that our bodies really need that. So that's saying that if you don't sleep for a long time and then you fall asleep, you're going to have a really sharp rebound and you're going to go into that deep sleep. Stage five is REM sleep and that's the rapid eye movement, and this is when we dream. So this is really different um, compared to all the other stages. So physiologically, everything has changed. Your EEG would resemble your wake time. Um, Your skeletal muscles are going to be atonic or without movement, and your breathing is going to start becoming very erratic and irregular, and your heart rate will increase. So the theory behind this is your muscles are going limp, so that you're not injuring yourself or acting out your dreams. Um, and your body is intentionally paralyzing you so that you're not moving around. So this is intentional. Your body's doing this to keep you asleep and in bed and not walking around and doing stuff. Um, that spindle activity that I mentioned earlier is how those waves are described. And this is exclusive to non-REM sleep. And it usually occurs during the end of non-REM sleep. These sleep spindles engage brain activation in the thalamus, which is located in the forebrain and has really strong connections with your cerebral cortex. During REM sleep, um, if, you were, if you were in a sleep study, um, these people that were reported intense and vivid dreams and improved memory of those dreams. During the other stages of sleep, the dreams are usually a lot more mundane and difficult to recall. Um, dreams during non-REM sleep usually occur after midnight, which happens to be the time period which you would be in the highest rate of REM sleep. So it's kind of like your body knows that this is when you should be asleep and this is when you're going to dream. Um, sleep cycles do not necessarily occur in order. So you're going to start in one, then you're going to progress to stage two and three and four, and then you're going to go back to three and two, and then you'll cycle into stage five, which is the REM sleep. Once your REM sleep is over, you're going to return to stage two, most typically. Some people don't do this in this exact order, but this is going to be the typical way that you would see your sleep progress. Um, And then sleep cycles usually go through this about four to five times throughout your night. And typically, you're going to enter the REM sleep about 90 minutes after you fall asleep. So this would be about an hour and a half after you fall asleep, you'll go into your first REM stage. And that's not going to be a very long amount of time that you'll spend in REM. But as the night goes on, those REM stages become longer. And this can last up to an hour as your sleep progresses. So sometimes if you think that your dream is lasting a really long time, it actually might be lasting a long time. You might be dreaming that for an hour. Um, And so then you might wonder what happens to your brain. So we'll go into that a little bit. So the function of sleep has mystified scientists for thousands of years. Modern research is providing some new clues about what it does for the mind and body. So sleep, one thing it does is it re-energizes our body cells, it clears waste from the brain, and it supports learning and memory. It may also perform a very vital role in regulating your mood, your appetite, and your libido. And so this is a really integral part of our life. And as research shows, it's really complex. Um, so the brain generates those two different types of sleep that we talked about, SWS, the deep sleep, and then the rapid eye movement, our dreaming sleep. Uh, most of your sleeping that we do, because it consists of so many stages, is going to be in the SWS, and that's those large, slow brain waves we talked about earlier, relaxed muscles, slow, deep breathing. And they think that this helps your brain and body recuperate after our long day. And then once we fall asleep, our brain doesn't just go offline. So a lot of times people will say, oh, you'll be out like a light. Well, it's not really true. So instead, there's a series of highly orchestrated events that puts the brain into sleep in those stages we talked about earlier. So technically, sleep starts in the brain areas that produce those SWS waves. Scientists now have concrete evidence that two groups of cells, ventrolateral preoptic nucleus in the hypothalamus. And the parafacial zone in the brainstem are involved in prompting SWS. And when these cells switch on, it triggers a loss of consciousness. And so John Peaver, director of the Systems Neurobiology Laboratory at the University of Toronto, and Brian J. Murray, director of the Sleep Laboratory in Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center, said, the function of sleep has mystified scientists for thousands of years, but modern research provides new clues. Um... And so it kind of just says kind of what we talked about earlier. Um, and then once we get through these stages, the kind this mode is kind of bizarre. And so the dreamer's brain becomes really highly active while the body's muscles are paralyzed. So breathing in your heart is going to become erratic, like we talked about earlier when we go into REM. The purpose of this deep stage five sleep is totally a biological mystery. Um, We start, we're starting to understand biochemistry and neurobiology, but we still don't really know why we need to dream. What we do know is that the sub, um, and I'm going to probably not say this right, sub nucleus controls REM sleep. And when these cells become injured or diseased, people don't experience the muscle paralysis that's associated with REM. And that can lead to REM sleep behavior disorder, which is a really serious condition And that's when you would actually act out your dreams and it could become quite violent um, just because you're going to be moving around. Um, One other thing we know is that cerebral spinal fluid is pumped more quickly throughout the brain when you sleep. And it acts like a vacuum cleaner, whisking away waste products such as molecular aderitis that brain cells make and toxic proteins that can lead to dementia over time. So when you wake up, you have kind of like a clean slate. And then your brain also restores information that wasn't ingrained during the day, such as the password that you were going to remember. Um, And experts call this consolidation. So it's really important for protecting against further information loss, as well as boosting our ability to learn while we're awake. It can even enhance our language skills and our hand-eye coordination. So a lot of times, like if you're learning a new task, um, such as a new game or something like that and you do it and you feel like you're not very good at it and then you go to sleep, if you try it again, you're going to see a difference. You'll be better at it because your brain is working on that while you're asleep. Um, and this is also true for emotional um, like situations. So your brain like memories. So your brain chooses and enhances the memories and experiences that are the most valuable to you. So your child's graduation speech... Um, things like that, something that's really important, maybe when you were proposed to, the first time that you met someone, anything that's important. And then it's also going to downgrade memories that aren't as important. So that could be something like maybe what they were wearing or something in the background that your brain is just deciding, probably not a crucial thing you need to remember. And then your brain replays memories of your daily to-dos and helps you reestablish the order in which those things occurred. And this is going to happen during your deepest stages of sleep. Um, in stage four, the part of your brain that's responsible for relaying nerve impulses throughout the spinal cord sends a message to turn off motor neurons, which causes that temporary paralysis that we've that we'll discuss a little bit later, and it can overlap with waking up. Um, and so then I'll go into a little bit more detail into some of these structures in the brain that are involved with sleep. Um, so just bear with me and then we'll get to the good stuff. And I just had to grab my beverage there. So the hypothalamus, and we talked about some of these structures in great detail in a couple of episodes ago, so I'm not going to go too far more into detail than what I've already got here, which is actually quite a bit. So just bear with me and, and then we'll go forward. So the hypothalamus is a peanut-sized structure deep inside your brain, and it controls a group of nerve cells that act as control centers affecting sleep and arousal. When your hypothalamus is, um, within the hypothalamus, excuse me, is the suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN, which is clusters of thousands of cells that receive information about light exposure directly from the eyes and control your behavioral rhythm. Some people with damage to this area sleep erratically throughout the day because they're not able to match their circadian rhythms with the light-dark cycle. And so your circadian rhythms are, it's like hormones that say, hey, it's light outside, you should be up. Or hey, it's dark outside, it's time to go to bed. Um, so those are those natural rhythms and you can look online for more information about that if you'd like to have more detail Um, And then most blind people, they maintain the ability to sense light, and they're able to modify their sleep-wake cycle, which is very interesting. And then we've got the brainstem, and that's at the base of your brain, and it communicates with the hypothalamus to control transitions between wake and sleep. And so the brainstem includes structures called the pons, medulla, and midbrain. Sleep-promoting cells within the hypothalamus and the brainstem produce a brain chemical called GABA, GABA, which acts to reduce the activity of arousal centers in the hypothalamus and the brainstem. The brainstem, especially the pons and medulla, also play a a very special role in REM sleep. It sends the signals to relax those muscles that are essential for those posture and limb movements so that we don't act them out. Um, And so then the thalamus acts as a relay for information um, from the senses to the cerebral cortex, which is the covering of the brain that interprets and processes information from short to long-term memory. During most stages of sleep, the thalamus becomes quiet, letting you tune out your external world. But during REM sleep, the thalamus is active, sending the cortex um, images, sounds, and other sensations that can fill our dreams. So if you have one of those dreams where you hear something in the background, like your phone ringing or something like that, and then all of a sudden it's in your dream, it could happen during that stage. Your pineal gland is located within the brain's two hemispheres and receives signals from the SCN and increases production of the hormone melatonin, which helps put you to sleep once the lights go down. Um, People who have lost their sight and cannot coordinate their natural sleep-wake cycle using natural light can stabilize their sleep patterns by taking small amounts of melatonin the same time each day. Scientists believe that the peaks and valleys of melatonin over time are important for matching the body's circadian rhythm to the external cycle of light and darkness. Then we've got the basal forebrain, which is near the front and bottom of the brain, and it promotes sleep and wakefulness, while part of the midbrain acts as an arousal system. Release of adenosine, a chemical byproduct of cellular energy consumption from your cells in the basal forebrain and likely other regions, supports your sleep drive. So caffeine counteracts sleepiness by blocking the actions of that adenosine. And then your amygdala, which is an almond-shaped structure involved in uh, processing emotions, becomes very active during REM sleep. So now that we've got the background and kind of how sleep works and how our brains work, let's talk about sleep paralysis. So this term was coined in 1928, Um, It's classified as a parasomnia and is recurrent and disturbing. Sleep paralysis mostly occurs in women, um, and it often occurs if you're lying on your back or your stomach. Um, This occurs in people that have no history of psychiatric disorders. Sleep paralysis would typically occur during the onset of sleep or the offset. So when you're going to sleep or when you're waking up, when your voluntary movement is inhibited but your ocular movements remain intact. So your body's not moving, but your eyes can move. Um, if you've ever seen someone sleeping, you might recall seeing their eyes move, and that can happen during that rapid eye movement stage. Um, sleep paralysis is also found with some medical conditions such as narcolepsy, seizure disorders, and when it occurs outside of those contexts, they call it isolated sleep paralysis or ISP. Um, when you experience this, um, you're going. To, it's very likely that you're going to have hallucinations. Um, The hallucinatory REM content of sleep paralysis appears to be different from normal dreaming. To give some perspective, about 30% of your regular dreams will be frightening, whereas 90% of sleep paralysis episodes involve fear. There are very few treatment options for sleep paralysis, and the research is super limited. It shows that REM suppressing antidepressants can be useful for some patients. Um, The lack of attention and research has caused sleep paralysis to become the scapegoat, scapegoat, scapegoat for supernatural beliefs such as witches, incubi, succubi, and alien abductions, um, and so even though sleep paralysis is terrifying, it's described as benign and lasting for a few seconds to a few minutes. And I apologize if you can hear something banging. I'm not quite sure what's going on downstairs. Um, so, um, it's described as lasting for a few seconds to a few minutes. People state that they use the sign of the cross with their tongues to ward off the sleep paralysis demons. Um, Many who experience sleep paralysis feel an overwhelming sense of evil, anxiety, phobia, nervousness, restlessness, and hallucinations. Um, And then there's a really famous painting that you might have seen which depicts a demon sitting on the chest of a sleeping woman. It's called The Nightmare, and it was painted by Henry Fuseli. If you Google it, you'll probably recognize it. It's been used in a lot of opening credits and a lot of the lore of some of those sleep paralysis movies that have become really popular. Um, and so Greek doctors were, able, were aware of sleep paralysis. Galen discussed the condition in, this, in the second century. Um, as The earliest written account of sleep paralysis can be found in a Chinese book on dreaming, which dated back to 400 BCE. It's interesting to note that a lot of these early examples refer to sleep paralysis attacks as a nightmare. Um, In fact, the symptoms of sleep paralysis implied in the original meaning of the word nightmare as opposed to what we think of a nightmare today, which is a bad dream. Despite the fact that medical professions have known about sleep paralysis um, and known it to be a natural phenomenon, throughout history, sleep paralysis has often been interpreted as supernatural, um, and this interpretation has had really deadly consequences. So it's been suggested that sleep paralysis may have had a role in the Salem Witch Trials. In 1692, Bernard Peach testified that one night he heard a strabbling. I'm not really sure what that. (laughs) I guess that's just because it was 1692. But a strabbling at the window whereat he then saw Susanna Martin come in, jump down on the floor. She took hold of the deponent's feet and drawing his body up, into a heap, she lay upon him for nearly two hours, in all which time he could neither stir nor speak. Um, in other cultures, even in modern times, there are dozens and dozens of different words for sleep paralysis and different interpretations. Um, but then when you think and you, when you look at it, sorry, I just hit that. When you look at it and then when you kind of go into the details of it, they all kind of seem the same. Um, everything at the core is very similar. So um, we'll talk about a few of the different creatures. So the old hag, which comes from folklore in Newfoundland, um, describes this old woman that comes in the night and sits on the sleeper's chest and suffocates them. The old hag may also be referred to as the night hag, and it also is called old hag syndrome. In the southern United States, this also can be referred to as witch writing. And then in my research, I also saw it called devil on your back. And then I probably won't say this right, so I apologize um, to any listeners that know that this is not correct, but the kenashibari is uh, means to tie with an iron rope is derived from the magic of Fudo Mayohu, which is a Buddhist god. The idea of being tied up comes from the belief that ancient Buddhist monks could use magic to paralyze others as if they were bound in a metal rope. Even today, many Japanese believe kanashibari to be caused by evil spirits in 1987 a study of japanese respondents um, found that the symptoms of kanashibari to be identical to those of sleep paralysis and then in saint lucia the condition is referred to as kokma Um, the interpretation is that it's the spirit of unbaptized children that would come and try to strangle you while you sleep in modern times the french said that people who experience sleep paralysis explain it by becoming convinced that they were abducted by aliens. Um, And then there's some very interesting literature, um, and this comes from the the Hmong Hmong community. So in 1977, it was discovered that more than 122 previously healthy people from various Southeast Asian communities had died mysteriously in their sleep. These individuals were dying at a rate of 92 out of every 100,000 And what they called this was sudden, unexplained nocturnal death syndrome. 121 of these people that died were male. There was no underlying cause found, only that subsequent studies revealed a high rate of sleep paralysis and a belief that the Dabzog, a nightmare spirit, amongst the members of the community. The Dabzog is an angry old woman that was upset that, um, that people left their native culture and they were leaving for America. The Hmong refugees called it a nightmare death. Um, And then I found some interesting research that showed that the nightmare or succubus slash incubus is descended from Lilith. The earliest reference to Lilith is found in the Sumerian king list of um, and it's 2400 BC and it's called Lilitu or she demon and she bore children from her nocturnal unions with men. In other literature she was Adam's first wife so we're talking Adam and Eve and she was created equal to Adam in the same way so rather than obey she ran away and became a demon that preyed on women during childbirth and infants for the first week or so that they were alive. In modern Middle Eastern maternity wards some women still wear amulets for protection against her. And then Lilith also appears in the Jewish religion as well as the Christian Bible. So in the Talmud Uh, Lilith was believed to have been the first woman and Adam's wife there are various narratives of Lilith's relationship with Adam the most popular related to her refusal to lie beneath him believing that they were created together both from dust and she should be viewed and treated as his equal uttering God's secret name Lilith transformed into a dragon and flew to the Red Sea where she was pursued by three angels sent by God When the angels gave Lilith, uh, Lilith, God's ultimatum to either return or return to Adam or be drowned in the sea, she replied, let me be for I was created in order to weaken the babes. If it is male, I will have power over him from the moment of his birth until the eighth day of his life when he is circumcised and thereby protected. And if it's a girl until the 20th day. Following Adam and Eve's encounter with the tree and the serpent, Adam refrained from, among other things, sexual intercourse for 130 years as a form of penance. During this time, Lilith, as one of the two female spirits, had intercourse with Adam, and he bore from them spirits and demons that flit around the world. So begins Lilith's reign and in the Talmud. And I'm sorry if I'm saying that wrong. I I googled it and then I had a lot going on, so I forgot if it's Talmud or Talmud. So I'm very apologetic for my mispronunciation. Um, And in the later tradition, when the succubus um, and the nightmare came, so this says, whenever these spirits find people sleeping alone in a house, they hover over them, lay hold of them and cleave to them, inspire desire in them and beget from them. They further inflict disease on them without their being aware. And so not only is Lilith blamed for diseases inflicted on men, but also for wondering about at nighttime, vexing the sons of men and causing them to defile themselves. So I thought that was really interesting just because I know if, if anyone's a Supernatural fan, you know that they incorporated Lilith into the lore there. And so I just, I thought that was really interesting and I didn't really know that kind of what those connotations were until now. And then we'll get a little bit into the DSM. So the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual says that nightmares usually begin between the ages of three and six, and they usually reach a peak prevalence and severity in later adolescence or early adulthood. Nightmares are usually more likely to appear in children that are exposed to acute or psychological stressors and may not resolve spontaneously. In a minority, frequent nightmares persist into adulthood, becoming virtually a lifelong disturbance. Although a specific nightmare content may reflect the individual's age, the essential features of the disorder are the same across the groups. Um, and so sleep terror disorder is both a nightmare disorder and sleep terror disorder include awakenings or partial awakenings with fearfulness and um, autonomic activation. Uh, but the two disorders are differentiable. So nightmares typically occur later in the night during REM sleep. And they produce a vivid and story-like and clearly recalled dreams, mild autonomic arousal, and complete awakenings. Sleep terrors typically arise in the first third of the night between stages 3 or 4, so that's the non-REM sleep. And they produce either no dream recall or images without an elaborate story-like quality. The terrors lead to partial awakenings that leave the individual confused and disoriented and only partially responsive with a substantial autonomic arousal. And so there's usually amnesia um, for the event in the morning. So that could be that stage three sleep that we talked about earlier where you're super groggy when you wake up. So REM sleep behavior disorder is the presence of complex motor activity during frightening dreams that should prompt further evaluation for REM sleep behavior disorder, which occurs more typically among late middle-aged males, and unlike nightmare disorder, is often associated with violent dream enactments and a history of nocturnal injuries. The dream disturbance of REM sleep behavior disorder is described by patients as nightmares, but is controlled by the appropriate medication. Um, Bereavement. So dysphoric dreams may occur during bereavement, but typically involve loss and sadness and are followed by self-reflection and insight rather than distress on awakening. Narcolepsy. Um, And I'm not going to get into huge detail about narcolepsy, I'm pretty sure. Most of you know what that is. It's kind of like where you're not able to regulate yourself and you fall asleep at at times when you should not. You can't stay awake. Um, And so nightmares are a frequent complaint of those that have narcolepsy, but the presence of excessive sleepiness and cataplexy differentiates this condition from nightmare disorder. Um, Nocturnal seizures. Seizures may rarely manifest as nightmares and should be evaluated with polysonography, and continuous video electrons. Oh man, I'm sorry. Electron cephalology. <laughs> I wasn't prepared for that one. Nocturnal seizures usually involve stereotypical motor activity. Um, associated nightmares, if recalled, are often repetitive in nature or reflect um, features like the content of of like unmotivated dread um, and imagery. And so disorders of arousal, especially confusional arousals, may also be present. So you might not be completely aware of what's going on. A lot of times our dreams don't make sense. Sometimes, you know, something is happening and you, you might know, hey, it shouldn't be doing this or you wake up and you think, wow, that wasn't even real or it could never happen. But in your dream, you believe it. Um, nightmares can also be comorbid. So that means it's occurring with something else with medical conditions, which can include coronary heart disease, cancer, Parkinsonism and pain um, they can accompany medical treatments um, like hemodialysis withdrawal from medications or substances um, it can happen if you've had substance abuse and you're withdrawing from that they're often comorbid with other mental disorders like post-traumatic stress insomnia disorder, schizophrenia psychosis mood anxiety adjustment and personality disorders and especially during grief or bereavement A concurrent nightmare disorder diagnosis should only be considered when independent clinical attention is warranted. Otherwise, no separate diagnosis is necessary. These conditions should be listed under the appropriate comorbid category specifier. However, nightmare disorder may only be diagnosed as a separate disorder in individuals with uh, post-traumatic stress if the nightmares are temporally unrelated to the PTSD, so preceding or coming before the PTSD symptoms or persisting after those symptoms are resolved. Nightmares are normally characteristic of REM sleep behavior, like we talked about earlier, uh, REM sleep behavior disorder, otherwise, uh, PTSD, and acute stress disorder, but nightmare disorder may be independently coded if nightmares preceded the condition and their frequency or severity necessitates independent clinical attention. The latter may be determined by asking whether nightmares were a problem before the onset of the disorder or whether they continued after other symptoms had remitted. So now we're going to talk about night terrors and, um, you know, that's something that I experienced with my son and it is really scary to watch someone have a night terror. If you've never experienced it yourself, um, just seeing someone, a child, especially that is absolutely not aware of what's happening and inconsolable, it's more frightening than if to me, it was more frightening. I'm not going to speak on your behalf. But to me, it was actually a lot more scary than it is to wake up from a nightmare just because you're sitting there and you're like looking at this small child and they're totally inconsolable. You cannot comfort them and they're not awake. That's the most frightening aspect. They are literally not awake. Um, and so people who have night terrors are usually misdiagnosed. Um, usually they're going to be told that you're just having a nightmare And any of you that have possibly had a night terror or that have been around someone that did know that they're not close. Um, Another common misdiagnosis, especially among veterans, is post-traumatic stress. Um, For this reason, I have included a description of the difference between nightmares and night terrors. So, uh, symptoms of night terrors can include sudden awakening from sleep, persistent fear or terror that occurs at night, screaming, sweating, confusion, rapid heart rate, Inability to explain what happened, usually no recall of bad dreams or nightmares. Um, You can have a vague sense of frightening images, but nothing real concrete. A lot of times people will see spiders, snakes, animals, or people in the room, and they're not able to fully wake up. They're difficult to comfort, and they typically have no memory of the event the next day. Uh, Nightmares occur during that dream uh, dream phase of sleep. Um, You're going to do that within the first 90 minutes or so of your sleep cycle, Um, The circumstances of the nightmare will frighten the sleeper, who will usually wake up with a vivid memory of a long movie-like dream. Night terrors, on the other hand, happen during a phase of deep non-REM sleep, usually within an hour of when you go to bed, and this is going to be right around stage four. During the night terror, uh, which can last anywhere from five to twenty minutes, the person is still asleep, and although the sleeper's eyes may be open, um, they're going to be totally out, When the subject does wake up, they usually have no recollection of the episode um, other than a sense of fear. Though This might not always be the case. um, There have been some people that have been interviewed that can remember portions of their night terror. Some people remember the whole thing. So it probably just really depends on your own physiology, how you are dreaming, and what happens. Night terrors typically occur in children between the ages of 3 and 12 years With peak onset in children age three and a half, um, it's estimated that one to six percent of children experience night terrors. Boys and girls of all ethnic backgrounds are affected equally. In children younger than three and a half, peak frequency of night terrors is at least one episode per week. Other older children, peak frequency would be about one or two episodes a month. Children usually have no recollection of the episode the next day. Pediatric evaluation may be sought to exclude possibility that the night terrors are being caused by a seizure, seizure disorder or a breathing problem, and most children outgrow sleep uh, night terrors, so there's no treatment that's really recommended. I know my son had a couple, and they were kind of far apart, so they didn't happen close enough together to really be prepared for it, and it's, it's really scary um, just to see, you know, and it's also you feel helpless because you can't really comfort them. Um, and so now we'll kind of go on to some of the, I've got some personal stories and some kind of coping skills. And so basically the research on the best methods to treat sleep paralysis is lacking. Um, one way that they say to prevent it is to practice good sleep hygiene. So get your recommended seven to nine hours of sleep a night. Make sure that your sleep times are consistent. Um, people have a tendency to sleep-deprive themselves on the weekdays, and then on the weekends they try to sleep in, so they recommend not doing that and keeping a pretty consistent schedule. Um, for sufferers of sleep paralysis, this can often be difficult because one of the things that happens when you have sleep paralysis, especially excuse me, consistently, is going to be that you'll be afraid to fall asleep. Um and that can disrupt your sleep cycle and it can make it more likely that it will happen so it com- becomes kind of a vicious cycle. Um, treating sleep disorders that bring on episodes of sleep paralysis is important so you want to avoid things like excessive alcohol, nicotine, and food intake right before bed. When it's happening it can be difficult to break the spell of sleep paralysis um, but a lot of patients have learned to recognize their episodes and some people can come, come to enjoy them so I know that might not sound real but apparently some people learn to enjoy their sleep paralysis um kind of like how you would enjoy a horror movie and if that isn't possible there's some alternative strategies like focusing on a small body part like your finger or your toe trying to wiggle it um trying to relax and tell yourself it's sleep paralysis and there's no aliens in your room talk yourself down um, realize that there's nothing in there at all, whether no matter what you see, reassure yourself that it's natural and there's nothing physically to worry about. So earlier, I mentioned that sleep paralysis usually doesn't last that long. But I did find a story online that kind of makes you wonder. So this was a 35 year old male. He was a private car driver, um, socially active, no prior history of psycho psychiatric illness. Um, and he'd been referred to a, um, for a psychiatric evaluation by his primary doctor. He was complaining of sleep disturbances and nightmares. Um, the incidents occurred after he would drive for long distances, and he developed an episode of sleep paralysis that was recurrent. And he said he couldn't move his body or speak, and later became um, panicked and very fearful. So this would occur randomly either at onset or upon wakening, and it would last between 10 and 20 minutes. Um, he said that alien forces like Jin were seated on his chest and he was unable to get rid of the frightening sensation. Um, they were not associated with vivid dreams. He had experienced similar symptoms of sleep paralysis more when he used to drive long distances, um, and then on rare occasions, but reported it worsening in frequency. And then, um, I did have a listener named Erica send in a story about sleep paralysis, Um, And so this is what she said, and I'm going to read this in first person because that's how she sent it to me. So here is what I have dealt with since I can remember. We've all had a nightmare where we feel like we can't breathe, but most of us wake up gasping for air and realize it was only a nightmare. Now imagine that your ability to breathe is not only a mental restriction, but also a physical restriction. This is my sleep paralysis. I have a nightmare with the inability to breathe and my brain wakes up. However, my body is not yet awake. The chemical that releases when we sleep to paralyze the muscles is still in effect. The reverse chemical in my brain is slow to activate my muscles, my face is in my pillow, and I can't move. I am suffocating. I struggle and yell at my body to move, even if it's just a finger. I want to scream for help, but I can't. I'm awake mentally, but physically I am in a deep sleep. I am breathing in my own hot breath, wondering if this is the time I don't wake up, suffocating from my own weight. I fight and fight to wake my muscles up and finally begin to feel movement of the muscles. I struggle and fight my own body, and eventually I'm able to move and gasp for fresh air. Sleep is terrifying for me. Each time I wonder if this will be the final time I walk the line of being awake and asleep. And so that is terrifying, just to think that you'd be sleeping face down. And and I did read that that happens very often with people that sleep on their stomachs. I myself did have a bout of sleep paralysis. I woke up totally unable to move, so it happened to me post-sleep. Um, I had anxiety. I felt like there was something malevolent in the room with me. I realized what was happening just because I had learned about parasomnias or sleep disorders in my degree. Um, so I knew what was happening, but my body was still paralyzed. So knowing what's happening doesn't mean that you're going to be able to kind of resuscitate yourself any faster. Um, I kept my eyes shut so I didn't see anything, but I did feel like there was something in the room with me. I prayed because as you've heard before, I was raised Catholic. So that was kind of a automatic response. Um, and then I was eventually able to jerk and my legs kind of like jerked up and kicked really fast. And then the paralysis was gone. I did have a lingering feeling of anxiety and like fearfulness after that though. Um, so that was my experience with it. Um, I did watch a really great film on Netflix, which is called The Nightmare. It goes into really great detail and does some reenactments of what people see when they have sleep paralysis. Um, so you should watch that. Uh, definitely recommend it. It had a lot of great information, first-person stories. Um, there's also some videos on YouTube. A lot of them aren't as good as the that film, The the Nightmare, but some of them are pretty good, so you can go on YouTube and look for some of those. Um, there's people that are being interviewed, and it kind of gives you a different idea of what happens, um, and then if you're having trouble sleeping, getting enough sleep is good for your health, so to improve it, set a schedule, get up and wake up, you know, get up, wake up at the same time, go to bed at the same time, get about 20 to 30 minutes of exercise, um, but don't do it too close to bed. Avoid caffeine and nicotine late in the day. Avoid alcoholic drinks before bed. Um, Relax before you go to bed, like reading, um, listening to music, take a bath. Create a room for sleep, which most often would be your bedroom. Um, But you don't want to have any bright lights or loud sounds in there. Keep it comfortable temperature. Don't watch TV or have a computer in your room. If you can't sleep, don't lay in bed awake. Um, Do something else like reading or listening to music out of bed until you feel tired. Uh, see a doctor if you have trouble sleeping or if you're feeling very tired during the day. A lot of times, sleep disorders can be treated effectively, and then we do have settings on our smartphones that can help with the how the screen brightness is. So take a look at those. Um, that can help out. So it doesn't inhibit your sleep. Um, so kudos this week. Thank you so much, Erica, for sharing your story. Appreciate it. Um, really appreciate your input. And if you have any ideas, you can feel free to email me at don'tcallmecrazypodcast at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter. I've got a Facebook page. Um, so don't hesitate if you have any ideas or if you have a personal story you'd like me to read during an episode, go ahead and send that in. Um, so thank you, Erica. And I've got some references here. So I've got a lot of information came from Arthur Siddiqui, Farin Krushi, and Al uh, 2018. Alien Abductions, A Case of Sleep Paralysis, uh, Sleep and Hypnosis International Journal, Ashley Welch with CBS News 2016, Um, Sleep Paralysis, NightTerrors.org, the uh, DSM that I mentioned earlier, Scientific American has some great information on the stages of sleep, Uh, Petzold, 1991, Southeast Asian Refugees and Sudden Unexplained Death Syndrome from a journal in Social Work, And Sharpless and Grome, 2016, Isolated Sleep Paralysis, Fear, Prevention, and Disruption. That's from the Journal of Behavioral Sleep Medicine. And then Walcut, that was from 2018, which was the stages of sleep. So thank you so much for listening. I appreciate all of your support. Um, And go ahead and give me a, a good review on iTunes. And we'll see you next week for the next episode.